Hey, Door Creek, how's it going? want to welcome you to uh, this place, whether you're out at one of our campuses, DeForest, Northside, or right here at Sprecher Road in the chapel, or perhaps you're uh, listening and worshiping with us online. Great to have you here. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and it's been a great, great week. So the reports have come back from our student ministries retreat last weekend. Check this out, 90 students were there, seven made first-time commitments to Jesus Christ, 15 rededicated their lives to Christ, and eight others are curious and want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. So is that great news? That is awesome. And uh, we are so grateful for our ministry staff, for the volunteers, and so proud of our students and the way that you're loving Christ, serving him, and trying to be a bright light for him on your campus. So we just celebrate that. Some of you have been also asking, so how do we do at the year end with our financial challenge? So we had a big mountain to climb, and the response was awesome. We had just short of 700000 come in. Now, it was a little short of our goal, but here's the cool thing. This last year, anticipating that it's a big year, right? So we had a new campus that started on the north side and a new building for our DeForest campus. So we raised some money through what we call their ministry expansion fund, which made up the shortfall. And so we're all square moving into this year, and we praise God for that. And thank you for your generous giving in this place. Your giving, you guys, continues to change lives each and every week. So thanks. So today, we turn from friendship to work matters. Today, we're going to talk about God's design for work next week, how and when it's hard, what are we supposed to do in those times. The third week, we'll talk about connecting our faith to our work. And then the fourth week, we're going to be talking about working for the common good. So when you just hear me say the word work, what kinds of things are running through your mind? Good things, happy things, or... Pull your hair out kinds of things. So is it a necessary evil? Is it a pain in the neck? Do you love it? Or is Johnny Paycheck saying you take this job and you remember? Uh, do you get out of bed excited for it? Or are you longing for the weekend, ready to quit or retire? True or false? Work is a result of sin and the fall. It is God's punishment for messing up. He has sentenced us to hard labor. All right, so just hang on to that answer. Uh, for those of you at other campuses, there was a resounding amen. So um, anyways, maybe you join that person. All right, here are the stats. This is interesting. The average person who works full-time today is working 47 hours a week. The average commute is about 27 minutes one way. So add the five hours to the 47, it's about 52 hours a week. They say in our lifetime, we're going to work 90,000 hours. I didn't do the math, so I don't know if this works or if it's a different statistic. The other statistic, this is from Siri. Personally, I got it from Siri, so it's got to be true. <laughs> 13 years of our life are spent on the job. According to Reuters, here's an interesting thing. This would not be true of any Swiss person or anybody in Europe, but in America, we only use, the average U.S. worker only uses 57% of their allotted vacation. You guys, what are you doing? All right, so there's no wonder that work is stressful, very stressful. Here are some of the factors that come up when you look at the surveys, the workload, 
along with that, the long hours, feeling undervalued, deadlines, the people that we work with, having to take on other people's work, and lack of job satisfaction. And if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, it all sounds very familiar. So, do you remember your first job? Uh, Do you remember your worst job? Man, I hope it's not the one you're in right now. So, first job, Route 48A, delivering the Chicago Daily News in the afternoons. I didn't know when I accepted the job that all the deliveries were at some level of an apartment building. But who cares? Well, they cared because I got pneumonia and they fired me. First job, Route 48A. Worst job, I think it was my sophomore, junior year in high school, where um, I had a six-week job at the store I'd been working at, Dominic's, right behind my house. They wanted me 40 hours a week to do this. Take everything off every square inch of shelving. Scrape off with your razor blade any scotch tape and clean it as a whistle and put it all back on. Was that a woo-hoo-hoo exciting job? I don't know if it's the worst, but it's close. Well, not so funny are the pressures of our jobs every day, from the toxic work environment to the sexual harassment to the discrimination to the pressure to produce more and more, to cut corners, all for the bottom line, right? The buyouts with the layoffs, the new culture, the new bosses. There's the challenge of how do I advance in my career without sacrificing, right, my marriage and my family? What does it look like to share my faith, to connect my work to Christ's work, to his mission without losing my job and without losing relationships? Boy, has that whole topic come into the, the spotlight this week when Tammy Kemp, Dallas County District Judge, did you hear this story? If you didn't, you got to chase this one down. It is just a beautiful story. Anyways, she gave convicted murder Amber Geiger her personal Bible. This is right after the brother of the man she murdered forgave her and, and pointed her to Jesus and asked the judge, can I please give her a hug? So there's a lot of motion going on. The, the judge comes down from the bench. He gives Amber her Bible and says, you know what, take this. I got about three or four more at home, and this is your work, and this is where you start. And she opens up her Bible, and she says, John 3, 16, and the cameras are rolling. And there's a lot of people who are upset some of them who work right here in Madison. So what defines work? What makes work work? Is it a paycheck? Is that what makes work work? So what about students? What about volunteers? What about a stay-at-home mom or dad? What about grandparents caring for their grandkids? What about someone who has a disability? What about someone who's retired, someone who's caring for a loved one? Do we no longer work if we don't get a paycheck, if we don't have a job? Why do we work and why should we? I don't know if you know the name Studs Terkel, great writer, author, best-selling author, historian, broadcaster. In his classic book, Working, he says this, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as 
for daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor. You know what? I had to look that one up too, man. I had no clue. Apathy. That, that, that's the word, apathy. And it goes on. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Wow. And some of us feel like Monday through Friday, we continually are dying. So here's where we're going to go. Here's where we're going to go. We are going to go and trace God's work. God is a worker, work that he has for us from Genesis all the way through the end of the story, Revelation. Here's what we're going to see is Jesus' work transforms our work that allows us then to connect our work to his work so that the the reward here is not the end of work, but actually work itself, which is creative, which is purposeful. It brings meaning to our life. It brings satisfaction, and it bears fruit now and through eternity. So we want to better understand God's design for work so that we think about work right, so that we have the right attitude about work, so that as we're talking to our kids about work today and training them to work, we're aligning our thinking and our practice with what the Bible tells us about work. So it's going to be, you know, a 30,000-foot flyover from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis. So grab your Bible Genesis chapter 1, very first page of your Bible after the the table of contents. So in Greek mythology, the gods loaf around the celestial palaces, right? And everybody is serving the Greek gods. But unlike them, the, the Bible pictures a god of untiring work. So what do we read in Genesis 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. It was chaos, right? Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So at the very beginning of the story, we're introduced not just to a God who speaks this world into creation, but to a God who's at work through the power of his word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present in Genesis 1. We don't see Christ in Genesis 1 until we read John 1, and we understand he is the word that brought about all of the creation, created world. The Spirit hovering over the Father, creating all things for himself and our good. So what we see, first and foremost, is God's work in creation. And his work in creation is going to be distinctive to anybody else's work because he doesn't start with material. His work, his creative work, is out of nothing, from nothing. The theologians will use the Latin ex nihilo, from nothing. He's making everything from nothing through the power of his word. And his work is good. It's the repeated word and phrase. It was good. It was good. It was good. Every day at the end of the created day, whether it was 24 hours or longer than that, it was good. It was good. 
the creation of man. It was very good. And then something happens in chapter 2, verse 2, and we say that God has a rhythm in his work so that it also is accompanied by rest. So in chapter 2, verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work of creation, right, that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And it's the only day in all the days that are described here that doesn't end with, and so there was evening and morning the seventh day. So we assume that God is still resting, but we're going to notice something about his rest that Jesus will tell us later in the message in John chapter 5, verse 17, that God's rest includes his ongoing work in this world. So here's what we know about God's work from creation and the rest of the Bible story. His work is about creation. His work is about providence, where he's caring for his creation. His work is about justice and judgment, where he's protecting his creation. And because of our sin, his work also includes redemption or restoration, where he's bringing all things back to their rightful place through Christ. So, we're at the height of his creation, created in the image of God. Go back to verse 26 of chapter 1. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we, created in his image, are called to join him in his work. So now we're going back to the true-false question, remember? All right, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We're creating his image. And we've got a job. We have meaning in this world. There, there is meaning he's attached through our work. Job number one, he blessed Adam and Eve and he said, be fruitful and multiply, which wasn't just physically have a lot of kids. Malachi 2.15 tells us he was seeking a godly offspring. That's why he made them one in marriage. So physical reproduction, spiritual reproduction, where the earth is being filled with children and grandchildren and descendants, all who bear God's image. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue. Rule under God. God has appointed us to be his stewards over his creation. We, we are to subdue it to bring it under control, to harness its potential, and we're called to work or to cultivate and to care for it as well. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, this garden that he had prepared, this garden of Eden, to work it and take care of it. We're called to cultivate, to care from the animals to the land to the people. The law will start to expand that as God gives the law to his people about what that looks like to care and to protect God's people, the land, each other, the animals. Cultivating or working here carries the idea of serve. So you could 
You could cultivate a field, you could cultivate a vineyard, or actually the same word could mean you could build a building. You could construct something. At the root of this word is the idea of to build and, interestingly, to worship. So right at the beginning, we're seeing that God understands and connects our work for God to our worship of God. It's like we say, in our first value, a life of worship. Remember it? Worshiping God in all of life. That's, that's our first value, a life of worship. So God is defining the definition here from his perspective of what makes work work for God. D- does it honor him? as we bear his likeness in this world, in whatever we're doing, paycheck or not, are we honoring him? Are are, are we seeking to make things better as we cultivate things that he's placed in our care, protecting things, caring for things, part of our work? So at the very beginning of this good story, Before chapter 3, when everything gets busted up, we meet a God who works and a God who creates us in his image to join him in his work for his glory and for deep meaning and purpose in our own lives. So what happens? Turn over to chapter 3, verse 16. Here Adam and Eve have rebelled, wanting to rule like God, and their rebellion and sin Mucked it all up. Mucked it all up for the worker and for their work. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Remember the first command he gave him: Be fruitful and multiply. Now that their work is cursed, now that their lives are cursed, not just with the, the sentence of death, separation from God, all of a sudden we see the connection here. They, Eve was supposed to be at the heart of bearing children that would fill the earth. If you you go back to the six days of creation, you've got uh, days one, two, and three where God is creating spaces and days four, five, and six where he's filling those spaces. And he says, I I want you to do that. I want you to fill this space. But now because of of sin and rebellion and the curse, that's going to be hard. That's going to be painful. And it's going to be severe. And there's going to be a tug of war going on within the uh, marriage relationship. But he goes on and speaks to Adam, verse 17. Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you. When's the last time you had that in your bowl of cereal? This is not good. Thorns and thistles, and you eat you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. So pain and suffering in their God-given assignment. So here's the interesting thing is nothing has changed about God's assignment for his people. They are to join him in his work, but everything's changed internally, externally because of their sin. So you read on 
And all of a sudden, in chapter 4, you see this in full flower in one of their sons, Cain. And so he, he, he's disconnected his heart and his work from God. So he brings a sacrifice that is not acceptable. We're not really sure. Did he not bring the first and best? Did he not bring an animal like his brother Abel? We, we're not sure. All we know is he knew what he was supposed to do and bring, and it wasn't aligned from the heart level with God. His work was disconnected from God. And his work then was disconnected from God's command to care. So the next thing that happens is in a jealous rage because his brother's uh, sacrifice was accepted, he says, hey, hey, Abel, I want to talk to you out in the field. And he takes him out, the image bearer, that he's to care for and protect. He kills him. Move ahead to chapter 11. There's a group of people, man, they are building and they are cultivating, and there's culture, and there's language, and there's technology. Are you kidding me? They've just come up with the brick. This is like big stuff, and they're building things, and it's going to be awesome. Now, God told them what? I want you to fill the earth. Fill the earth. And what do they do? They're camping out on Shinar's plain, and they're taking their bricks, and they're building it, for their glory, so that we'll make a name for ourselves, completely disconnected. But in the middle of the story, where we are from Genesis 3.15 to where we are today and where we'll be till Christ comes back or calls us home, we understand that sin doesn't just muck it up and have the final say, that God in his grace can help us to actually get it right. So there's a lot of people whose heart and work is connected to God's. Men and women like Moses and Joseph and Daniel and Ruth and Esther, that beautiful woman in Proverbs 31, Ezra and Nehemiah, to name a few. A great study would be the life of Joseph, who understood that God was with him and everything he did was for God's honor. When we get to the wisdom books, those middle books of Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, so Genesis is part of the first five. We call it the law. And then we were just talking about the history books, those 12 books. Then at the very middle of the Old Testament, we've got the poetic books, the wisdom literature, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Here, we have the wisdom that reminds us what happens when we disconnect our work from God's work. And what we find out as our work becomes meaningless and futile, and hard. And so King Solomon, this, this guy that I imagine built places like Versailles, you know, he would say, man, I, I built these houses and, and palaces and vineyards and gardens and parks. Man, it was awesome. People came to see it, but it, but it was all meaningless. As I pursued, and here's the key phrase in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. That's like an idiomatic expression for saying, as I did life without God, I lowered my view, and all I saw was the here and now, and I lived for the here and now, and I wasn't connected to God. And it was all meaningless. In chapter 2, verse 22, we read this same book. What do people get, Solomon says, for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? There's that phrase. All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. 
But we find out that, that God is not absent in the life of our story here in the middle of the story, and he can bring joy and meaning. And we find this in the next verse. Yet with God, key phrase, with God, there can be contentment and enjoyment and happiness. And just think about that. Because you're, you're convinced, not my job, ain't no way those three words could ever be true. Contentment, enjoyment, happiness. Well, well maybe you've never taken God to, to your workplace. With God. Those three things are true. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, a gift from God, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, their work, this is a gift from God. God can do that. Bring that very thing that we long for, contentment, enjoyment, happiness, enjoyment, a gift from God. That takes you to the prophets. And those books of the prophets, the major prophets, the first five, and then the 12 prophets after those 17 books, all kind of just are accusations about the people who haven't done it. They haven't done it. They've not connected their hearts and their work to God's work. And so the flaws of the worker and his work are, are pointed out. The worship of God is exchanged for the work of their hands. Idols. The care and protection that they were to administer to each other was trashed. So we read this in Isaiah chapter 1. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds. That's how God described their work. It was evil. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Please the case of the widow. Their work was no longer connected to God, and so it was no longer able to be work that, that promoted the common good of their neighbor, even the most vulnerable within their midst. So that brings us to the Gospels, where we're introduced to a Savior, Jesus, who redeems the worker and our work. So think about this. Jesus lives some 33, 33 and a half years. He starts his public ministry at age 30. The rest of his life, you know where he's hanging out? In a carpentry shop. I love to tell my friends who wear a tool belt to work each day, don't forget, God only had one son, and he made him a carpenter. He's a carpenter. That's significant. He's the king of all kings who became a carpenter. That's beautiful. We read this in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? When this guy comes on the scene, well, what's going on here? This guy can preach. This guy's doing miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Ordinary work. Ordinary work. But all of it pleasing to God. How do we know? Because at the baptism, when he starts his ministry, the voice from heaven, right? This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. He was a carpenter. For how many decades of his life, 
public ministry for three, a carpenter for seven times that? I don't know. A long time. So Jesus, disciples, think about it. What do we call Matthew? Well, we could call him an accountant, an IRS guy. He's a tax collector. You got the commercial fisherman. You had a lot of those. He was into the commercial fisherman, Jesus was. There was a politician, right, Simon the Zealot. And later his followers would make up a guy like Luke, the doctor. You had soldiers, and you had Lydia, the textile. Uh, she was in the textile industry. We even had a warden, right? We got the jailkeeper from Philippi, a warden. All kinds of people. And this is what we know about how Jesus saw his work. He said this in John chapter 4, 34. My food, that which sustains me, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work of restoring his work, of restoring all things back to their rightful place. And uh, he talks about the Father's work in chapter 5. He's been healing on the Sabbath, something he did all along. So one of the things we see in Jesus' life is he had this total balance about work and rest. And he was faithful in keeping the Sabbath, even though the religious leaders went crazy going, you're breaking the Sabbath because you're working when you heal that person. And Jesus is always doing good as he worshiped God and celebrating communities gathered with his friends. And so he's just healed on the Sabbath. And in defense of that healing, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work. Remember Genesis 2-2? God is at rest. There is no evening and morning. He's at rest. But God's rest includes even work to this very day. And I too am working. And Jesus invites us into the work, right, when he says, go and make disciples. Get as many children and students and adults, anyone from their youth to just to the end of their life, point them to me, make disciples, teach them, baptize them, join me in my work. In the epistles, we see that Christ's work is continuing on through the apostles and his disciples, right? And so Christ's work, though he's ascended into heaven and he tells his disciples what he's going to do, he's going to prepare a place, John 14. He's going to pray for them, right? He's going to be an advocate for them. So he's at work preparing this place, praying, advocating for us. But he says, you go on with my work. You're my hands and feet now. And what we learn in the epistles is there is no division between sacred and secular, so if you're a plumber, God love you. Be the best plumber that you can be. And there's nothing like plumber preacher. Just don't be a plumber like Leaky Dave. Leaky Dave was working on our cabin. I didn't know he was Leaky Dave, but that was his nickname. That's not a good nickname if you're a plumber. You don't want to be a Leaky Dave. You be a great plumber, as Jesus was a great carpenter. So in the epistles, we, we understand there is Nothing we can do. We can eat or drink. Whatever we do, we can do it all for the glory of God. And we read this beautiful, beautiful passage in Colossians 3, 17 and 23. And this has got to be key. Like, this is, this is one you got to underline. This is one you got to take home. This thing recalibrates our attitudes and behavior when it comes to our work, whether we're retired or going to school this week or whatever it is. He says this. 
Paul speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And whatever you do, that pretty much covers everything, right? The whatever. We're all clear on that? Good. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, your words, your actions, wherever, whatever, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For him, for his honor. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Whatever you do, work at it with all your might, with all your strength, with all your heart. Do you hear about the guy who always came in late? He says, you know, I always come in late. I'm really sorry. But you know, I always leave early, right? <laughs> just, just think about that. It sounded right at first, didn't it? Just keep thinking about that one. All right. Stay with me. All right, so um, when we get to the epistles, the guy who's planning all the churches and traveling 10,000 miles in his lifetime is a guy we often think of as a Pharisee who meets Christ, and he has a change of heart and life and mission, but he's got a profession. Do you remember what it is? He's a tent maker, and we're going, that's so weird. Like, did he work for Coleman, or what's the deal here? Well, tents, you know, it's just like... You used a lot of tents back in the day. A lot of tents back in the day. That was his profession. Jesus a carpenter. Paul a tent maker. And that takes us to the end of the story. Revelation. God's restoring work is complete. Thorns, thistles, pain, suffering, all removed. The curse wiped out when Jesus took the curse on himself and completes his work. In Revelation 22.3, we read this, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Serving has the idea of working, of worshiping, serving him. And so we remember this. In Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I don't know what your concept of heaven is, but I think it's probably too celestial. I don't know how it's going to work, but God is going to purify through fire. He's going to replace through fire, but heaven and the new earth, the new heaven is on the new earth. It's, it's, it's this place, it's physical. We're going to be there by God's grace. And in that place, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And so then I'm thinking of the benediction I gave this weekend for our good brother Ken Hill, his funeral, a great leader in our church. And I ended with those words from Revelation 14, verse 13 that says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And their works do follow them. And we're going, whoa, 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 whoa. You are just making a case for there's going to be work in heaven. And chapter 14, verse 13 says, 
Nope, when we die in the Lord, we're going to rest from our labors. Well, there's, there's a specificity to that use of the word labor, which has always negative connotations to trouble or labor or toil, to all the work that is hard in this twisted, broken, fallen place. No more of that. And why should we be surprised? We were created at the very good beginning to join God in his work. Why should we be surprised that we would spend eternity finding joy and fulfillment and using the created gifts that God has given us to continue to do work for his glory and great good? And we've settled for what? Sitting on clouds and strumming some little lute here going, that's heaven. No wonder nobody's excited about that. No, there's meaningful work from beginning to end as we join the God who's been at work on our behalf through his son. So I've got a confession. Our first value is a life of worship, worshiping God in all of life. And I think I've done a poor job of helping us connect our faith to the workplace. And this is where you guys work and live. And uh, pray that we as a teaching team will be more aware of that dynamic. This is, this is where you spend your time, your lives, the relationships. This is where God has called you to further his mission in this world. I want to give great thanks and praise to God for parents who taught me two fundamental things, to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ and to work hard and love working hard. I love that about my parents. They taught us about excellence. Man, my dad had the biggest shoes and I had to, I had to like, I had to polish 12 of them every week and my little hand would slip into that thing that looked like a size 22 Bob Lanier sneaker. I mean, it was huge. And if I didn't get it just right, we got to go back to the beginning because my mom said there's a certain way the shoe's got to look. It's all got to be polished. I'm so glad that my mother taught me about excellence, my dad, and that my mother always was singing and whistling when she was at work. My parents loved working, and they worked hard, and they allowed us to join into the work, and we did that together as a family. And then they taught us how to rest. There is no work on Sunday. <laughs> you couldn't mow the lawn. You couldn't wash the car. That's Saturday stuff. It was pretty hard growing up as a kid, to be honest with you, because it, it maybe got a little crazy legalistic, like there are certain things you couldn't do. But anyways, I learned how to rest. And uh, my dad looked like a workaholic on all accounts, working 18-hour days, five days a week. Um, but he always took his vacations. And he was at every breakfast table and every dinner table. I'm so grateful for my, my parents. Which reminds me that those of us who are raising our kids, man, this is like really important that we align our thinking, we align our conversations, how we talk about our kids at school, how we talk about the importance of the grades, how we talk about their future careers. What is driving the conversation? Is it their future success as the world defines it or as God defines it? What are we modeling? What story is our work telling our kids? So where is our thinking? 
our attitudes, our approach to work, to school, to retirement? How does it need to be reshaped? How does our mind need to be renewed by the word of God? What are your expectations about work? Man, we're in the middle of the story. There's this great cartoon. It's the editor talking to Charles Dickens. Dickens, it's either the best of times or the worst of times. Which is it? Well, it's both. When it comes to work, it's both. Do you expect that? Or do you think it's just all bad? Align our thinking with God's word. There's nothing that you are doing that cannot be connected back to God. There is in a situation, a person at work, your work matters to God. And that ought to ennoble us and give us a new set of eyes as we head off to the workplace. So we're going to do a really fun thing. Um, We, for this month, are going to post in each of our campuses a Work Matters board. And there are these different categories of work and encourage you to fill out a blank card, gives your name and what you do, Whatever that is, as we've been talking about work, a student, retiree, a volunteer, whatever your work is, you put it on there. And and we're going to celebrate how God is placing us in so many places around this city, his people around the world. And we're going to pray for each other because we want to encourage each other. And maybe in God's providence, there'll be some connections of people like, huh, I didn't know anybody else had that job too. And we could encourage each other as we connect our hearts and our lives to God's work. So let's, let's join God in his work wherever he has us. Let us point people to Jesus. Let's do good work. Let's stand out for Christ on our campuses and workplace at home. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you that you have not just been working in creation, but you've been working for your creation. And there is no greater work than the work of your son, who you freely gave for us. When our hearts were far from you, detached from you, not wanting you, thinking we even needed you, and you were merciful to us. Thank you for helping us understand that all of life has meaning. Because in all of life, even eating and drinking, we can honor you and give you glory. And so, renew our minds. Enliven our hearts, our hands and our feet and our minds. That we would do good work for you, to your glory. And bring great good to this world you've called us to serve. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said, amen.